before I preach this morning, I want to tell you a story. So I get to work with families who are grieving, and oftentimes families who are grieving don't get along, especially siblings. Have you noticed that? It was really fun to have siblings on the stage this morning who love each other and that are modeling that. But there was a set of siblings that I was working with recently, and they, were, they didn't even want to talk to each other when they were going to come to the same city in order to do their, loved, their, their mother's funeral. And I just sat down on my couch and I said, Lord, what do you want to do in this situation? What's on your heart, God? What, what would you like to see happen? And immediately I got this picture of one of the siblings who was going to get an airplane and fly here. That they were going to have an experience as soon as they sat down on the airplane. And the Holy Spirit was going to change them. And, and these are Christians. They have the Holy Spirit living inside them. And so I said... Holy Spirit, you're the one who pours out your love in our heart. That's Romans 5.5, 5, by the way, if you need a verse to make it legal. And would you do that for this person when they get on the plane? And so I texted their sibling and I said, I'm praying for your sibling that when they sit on the plane, that they are overwhelmed by God's love and they're going to actually talk to you when they come to town. I got word yesterday. It's pastor, you're never going to believe this. But what you were praying for, that's exactly what happened. My sibling got on the plane and all of a sudden they changed their mind. They decided to talk to me and we reconciled. I said, that's God and he loves you. He sees where you are. He's moving. He hasn't forgotten about you. I just feel like you needed to hear that story this morning for two reasons. One, some of you feel like God has forgotten you and they don't, he doesn't see you and he wants to come through for you and he sees you. But secondly, some of you, you imagine things in your mind and the Holy Spirit is actually showing you pictures, but you're not sure if it's really God. Step out, pray it out, especially if it's something beautiful like that and redemptive, and then check to see what happens. Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. So always watching to see, God, what did you do? How did you come through? And when you do see it, yes, God, you're so good celebrate it and be thankful. All right, so let's preach. Forrest Gump, one of my favorite movies. You know, the running scene in Forrest Gump almost was not actually produced. They were running out of money, and it was going to cost too much money to go to these places to have Forrest Run, Forrest Run. Can you imagine that movie without Run, Forrest Run? No. It was such an important part of the plot line that Robert Zemeckis, the director, the producer, and, and good old Tom Hanks, who plays Forrest Gump, said, what if we wrote the check? So they actually wrote, and they were very large checks, to produce those scenes. And you see Forrest, this picture of Forrest, who's grown a long beard, and he's, uh, he's running across America, and he's interviewed, and why do you want to run? Why are you doing this? I don't know. I just wanted to run. I think Forrest is working through all the things that are stirring up in his heart, and, and I am kind of like Forrest Gump in that way, in that sometimes when I'm just running and there's nothing else, God just helps me sort things out. He begins to speak to me and show me things. And being on the run... It can be a good thing in that you're, well, processing with God. But 
In the case of our passage today, being on the run for David meant you were liter- he was literally one step ahead of death, he says to his friend Jonathan. So David's on the run from King Saul. In this series we're going through in 1 Samuel, and it, it, I'm calling this series Lessons from Three Kings. And Saul is certainly on the way out, and David is on the way up, but we've kind of hit a snag here. It seemed like everything was going great for David. He marries the princess. He's serving in the palace. He's the commander of armies. He's like the head of the bodyguard for Saul. Man, this guy's on the rise. You can tell. Everybody knows that he's going to be the king. But then all of a sudden, he's running for his life, because Saul wants him dead. Saul wants the throne to go to his son, Jonathan. So this morning, where are we? Well, we're going to see the temptations that we face when we run. When we run away from responsibility, fear, all sorts of things that we should be facing, we begin to just book it out. When we look at David, we're going to see him actually make some critical errors. We're going to find out that David doesn't do everything right all the time. But he lands, he sticks the landing in this passage and learn a key axiom of leadership at the end. But we're also going to see the spiritual implosion of our friend King Saul. Bless his heart, as they say in the South. He just can't get it right. And the fear and anxiety inside is beginning to just affect everyone in any kind of radius around him. And we're going to see serious bad fruit in his life. So five locations in our passage this morning. It was the best way to kind of divide up the the passage. We're going to take five stops as David's running away. He goes to the sanctuary at Nob. This is where the tabernacle is set up, but the Ark of the Covenant is not there. That for a different day. But it's a place of worship where the priests are hanging out. It's a safe place. Then we're going to go to Mordor. I mean Gath, which is in the land of the Philistines, and it is the last place you'd want to go. Why? Because it's Goliath's hometown. So we're going to go there. We're going to go to a cave. Why? Because caves are cool. At Adullam. That's a safe place in the no man's land between Philistia and Judah. Then we're going to sit under a tamarisk tree with our friend Saul as he has an epic pity party and a meltdown. Finally, we're going to hide in the forest with David and land the plane. Are you ready? Let's jump into the sanctuary at Nob. So just to give you a little context, David is running away from Saul. Saul, meanwhile, is laying uh, mostly clothed, but partially not clothed, um, prophesying, worshiping God with Samuel and the prophets for about a day or so, day and a night. And that gives David enough time to get back to the palace, connect with his friend Jonathan, and he runs. And the first place he goes to is Nob. It's not a doorknob, it's a city. Let's take a look. First one. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Why is the priest freaking out? He senses something is wrong. He's a man of God. He is, has some discernment that something's not right. It's interesting. When we are running from something... Other people in our life often feel the dissonance and the Holy Spirit will begin to reveal to them that we need help. And they may feel uncomfortable around you. And they may ask you questions you're not ready to answer. That's what we're going to see 
next. David, verse 2, answered Ahimelech the priest, uh, the, the king, uh, yeah, the king charged me with a certain matter, a uh, certain matter, yeah, and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission uh, and your instructions. Oh, as for my men, I have, uh, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. It's pretty vague what he's saying. Let me just break it down for you uh, that don't get it yet. David is lying to Ahimelech. Either in an effort to try to save Ahimelech or somehow he doesn't want this, this priest to worry. This is an opportunity to remind you that just because it's in the Bible, you shouldn't always emulate it. In this case, don't go lying. The Lord detests a lying, lying lips. That's what Proverbs says. So, the lie is going to come back and, oh, it's going to, go, it's going to end so badly. The lying is going to end in dying. And we'll see that at the end of the passage. But when we're in trouble, when we're running from something we're afraid of, responsibility, something that's intimidating, we're tempted to lie to keep others from sending us back to what we're running from. Lying feels so convenient. And it might seem like your only option at the time. But lying demonstrates a lack of trust in God. When we lie, we don't trust that God is going to defend, to help, to provide, to guide. Have you been tempted to not speak the whole truth recently? In this season, have you been tempted to lie? If so, it might be a clue that you're running from something. Verse 3, now then, now that I've given you that really, really specific answer, priest, um, what do you have on hand? Uh, he's shopping, right? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. So why is David really stopping? He needs sustenance. He needs some food. Verse 4, but the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. Now, without getting into all the ceremonial laws, let me just break it down for you and say, there's 12 loaves, two stacks of six on the, on the golden table in the tabernacle. This is baked every week and put fresh before the Lord as an offering. And then the old bread that's week old, is given to the priests. Only the priests can eat this bread. I don't, I don't know that I would lo love to eat weak old bread anyway, but it was very specific in the Bible. This is who is supposed to eat the bread. It's not just like for anybody who wants to eat it at any time. David responds this way, verse 5. David replied, oh yeah, indeed women have been kept from us as usual. I mean, whenever we set out, the men's things are holy, even though the missions uh, are not holy. Uh, but how much more today? Uh, verse 6, so the priest gave him the consecrated bread. Since there was no bread there except for the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and re replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. So... Ahimelech says, okay, you can have this bread. So you got David lying and the priest breaking the Levitical laws. Man, this is a tragedy. Wait, wait, wait. 
Let's ask Jesus what he thinks about this, shall we? Moving forward to Matthew 12, Jesus is actually given a parable talking about his, his guys eating on the Sabbath and, and grabbing some grain and stuff like that. And he says, look, this is, this is okay. In fact, when you think about Ahimelech giving David the bread of the presence, it was okay. He's commending the decision. Anytime Jesus commends your decision, I think you're on solid ground, right? And Jesus says this, the purpose of the law is mercy. Just let that sink in for a second. The purpose of the law is mercy. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Ahimelech is actually fulfilling the law. Romans 13, 10, love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So Ahimelech, nice job. David's kind of, he's kind of lacking some, he's, he's losing it a little bit. But Ahimelech, great job. Now, like a movie, you guys are fans of movies, right? When the focus changes, all of a sudden, the people, the main characters in the foreground go blurry. I think it's called rack focus. And they go back into the background. And back in the background, there's this guy with this greasy, long black mustache and a black hat. And he's, he's kind of doing this thing. Verse 7, here he is. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. Let's stop for a second. We're going to see him later in the passage, so let's set him up right now. Spoiler alert, Doeg is one of the most evil men in the entire Bible. He's got to be top 10. If you can find... 10 more evil people than him, then let's have coffee and I'll buy. He's an Edomite, which means that he's descended from Esau. They've been at war with the Jews. I don't know what he's doing working for Saul, but he's the head shepherd. Well, recent scholarship shows that he was perhaps the head of all of the servants, meaning he was kind of the top dog in the palace. Head of the secret police, maybe something like that. But Let's just say this, whatever his job, these are the things that we know. He has authority, he's in Saul's presence, uh, and we're going to see that later, and he's on Saul's team. So we see him in the background, and this is brilliant writing. The word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit and written so beautifully, and it's just, this is such great drama. Back to the foreground. Verse 8, David asked Elhamelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon uh, because uh, the king's business was so urgent. So David puts the bread in his backpack, in my mind's eye, and now he's asking for a sword. He's still shopping. I don't think priests usually pack swords. It's just not a thing, I don't think. But David, I think, had a reason for coming to this place to ask this particular priest. We see it in the next verse. The priest replied, oh, well, the, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the Valley of Elah. Oh, nice job on that. It's here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, you can take it. There's no sword here but that one. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. <sighs> Goliath's sword has been there in the sanctuary of God. 
Maybe because the school kids come and do field trips to go see it? I think it's stored there because it reminds everyone how God saved the nation miraculously. But it's like a museum piece now, and David says, I'll take it. That'll do. Eugene Peterson says this about this passage. So with that, David is on his way. He came to the holy place hungry and defenseless. He left full and equipped. Eugene Peterson also points out that bread and a sword are both symbols for what? The word of God, which apparently David was also seeking there as well. We find that out later in the passage. He's not just there to go shopping. He's also there to hear from God. And this is a pattern we see in in David's life that we should emulate, that he's constantly seeking after God, putting himself in places where other people are hearing God and, and, and submitting himself and humbling himself. He's a man after God's own heart. Not because he doesn't do anything wrong, but because when he does something wrong, he's quick to repent and say, oh, create in me a clean heart, O God. So David runs to a safe place. He seeks out a word from the Lord. He humbles himself and asks for help. Some of us need to learn how to ask for help. Some of you learn, need to learn how to receive. He gets food. He gets a weapon. He gets back on the road. Next stop. Mordor, I mean Gath. David says to himself, I got a plan. I got a plan. I'm going to go to a place where Saul will definitely not find me. I'm going to go to the land of the Philistines. Never mind that Gath is Goliath's hometown and I'm packing his huge sword on my side. I'm going to blend right in. This is going to work great. This is not David's sharpest moment. Verse 10, that day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Verse 11, but the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one that they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. They've heard the song on the radio too. That David, David has been killing ten thousands of their people. Oh, this makes him incredibly popular. You know TMZ and the tabloids, they're like all about it. They're going to recognize David, of course. So they take David to the king. It's a good example of the fact that good things and bad things we do oftentimes follow us. It's important to remember, because a lot of times when you're on the run, you're actually trying to escape those things in the past instead of facing them. 1 Timothy 5 says, The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Verse 12, David took these words to heart, and he was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Verse 13, so he pretended to be insane. Desperate times call for desperate measures in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the door of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Akish said to his servants, look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? That's a little humor here. Where he says, I got a lot of crazy people here. We don't need one more crazy guy. So David ends up escaping the king of Gath by acting crazy. 
and he writes a song about it. It's not exactly the first thing that I thought of that I would do after that. Psalm 34, which is your homework this week, which is a beautiful song. Psalm 34 is so chuck full of such good stuff. If you just Google it and watch music videos, you'll see song after song after song after song that are powerful and beautiful out of it. Just a couple verses out of it. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and they were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man, he's talking about himself in this situation, cried and, and, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he rescues them. So good. What's the point? Desperate times call for desperate measures and no, not acting like insane is the application point here. The application point is this. We didn't see in 1 Samuel, but we see it in Psalms. The fact that David is constantly seeking God for his help in every way. And he sings about it and he says, and God saved me. Even when I was acting crazy, I was praying like crazy. Crying out to God. Do you cry out to God? Does life have to get so desperately horrible for you to cry out? Or are you quick to cry out to God? This is a a, a heart check for me. I sometimes wait for things to get bad before I go, Oh yeah, God, help! I want to pray first and take Advil second. I want to ask God, I want to cry out to him. And if you don't, why not? So here's David. He escapes Gath. Now, David runs from enemy territory into no man's land. No man's land between the land of the Philistines and Judah. Uh, And it's a cave to hide in. It's the cave at Adalam. Now, we're going there. And in the cave, we're going to see three principles of how we can actually live life when we find ourselves on the run or maybe kind of stuck in the waiting room, finding ourselves looking out the mouth of a cave instead of the window of a palace. So, now we're in chapter 22, 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. David left Gath. He got out of there. He escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now, when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. So, they find out, wow, David found a safe place. We're going there. Why? Because they realize their lives are probably in danger. They're related to David. Saul is a danger to them. So down they go. But wait, there's more. It won't just be a family camping in a tent. It's going to be hundreds of people. Next verse. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, him meaning David, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Big cave. These are not like all of the people that you've been wanting to go camping with because of COVID. You haven't been able to do it. You can't wait to do it. No, no. These are the, what we call the VDPs, the very draining people. They're all discontented. They're in debt. They're like throwing like pity parties all over the place. And what does David do? He doesn't, he's not paralyzed. He's not, he doesn't decide to be passive. He doesn't sit around and pout. He says, I'm going to serve. I'm going to be your leader. Instead of being in the palace, he's in a cave. But principle one, 
Serve God where you are. Wherever you are, whatever you're facing, serve God. And and in doing so, serve others. Because when we love others, we're loving God. 1 Peter 4, 19 says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. When you find that things are rough, don't disengage. Don't get self-focused. Remain others-focused and God-focused. Serve where you are. Verse 3. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab. He's just going to go out of the cave a little ways. Moab's in the east. And said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them, his father and mother, with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. So he says, you know, I don't really want my mom and dad camping with me in the tent. This is not, this is not optimum. Let's take them to Moab. Why? Because I'm trying to see what God's will is. This is principle number two. When you're in this spot like this, you're running, seek God's will. When things are tough, get into your Bible. Begin to pray. Pray with others. Have others who hear God speak words over you. Keep seeking. And not only does he keep seeking in the midst of that, but he also is in a lot of ways, looking for hints about his future by going back to the past. Why is Moab, why does he bring his parents to Moab? His grandmother, Ruth, is a Moabite. He's got Moabite blood in him. He knows that God did a great work there with her. So he goes back and asks for his parents to be able to be there. Why? Because he knows that God was moving and working there before. Sometimes in order to see the future and understand where God's taking you, you've got to go back and rehearse what God's done in the past. I've said that probably 500 times in the last year. At some point, you're going to have it burned into your mind. Always look back to look forward. Always rehearse God's goodness in order to have faith for the present and the future. So, verse 5, moving on. But the prophet Gad who happens to be there in the tent, I guess he's probably discontented or he like just showed up, I don't know, said to David, do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. Uh, Wait a second. Uh, Judah, that's really close to where Saul is. Why are you asking me to go back into enemy territory? This is what God is speaking through his prophet. What does David do? So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. So this prophet, he's new on the scene, right? His name is Gad. He gives David a word. We're going to see him again speaking in David's life later. In fact, there's three prophets that speak into David's life. We have Samuel. You know all about him by now if you've been with us in this series. Samuel's a legendary prophet. He's not dead yet, by the way. We're kind of, you're kind of keeping him around here for a little while. He's, he's dying soon. He's really old. Then we've got a guy named Nathan, who is the one who confronts David when he's uh, caught in adultery with Bathsheba. Um, and then... Thirdly, we see Gad. If you want to see all three of them together, referred to in 1 Chronicles 29, 29. For those of you who are taking notes. So, David is quick to respond. 
to what God's saying. This is principle number three. We need to be quick to respond to God's words. He, David doesn't do everything right. But he's a man after God's own heart because he's willing to repent and say, oh yeah, God, okay, I'm going to get on, on the page with you. His heart is soft. So the view from a cave, a dark cave, is a difficult one. But if you're willing to serve others in the midst of it and seek God's wisdom and be quick to obey, God will lead you forward. He will show you what's next. Meanwhile, Saul is throwing an epic pity party under the tamarisk tree. And we're going to see that David's little white lies, the lying is going to actually turn into dying. 1 Samuel 22, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. Somebody ratted him out. And Saul, spear in hand, why? Because he's always got a spear in his hand, was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah with all his officials standing around him. Oh, he looks so royal. Verse 7. Saul said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, can't even call him David, give you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? This is classic us versus them. You know what? If you vote for my administration, I'm going to fund you. We're going to make sure you get taken care of. He's not going to do that. Why? Because he's from a different tribe. We're Benjamites. He's from Judah. Saul is so warped and so conniving. He's trying to get their loyalty by insinuating gifts and rewards will come from his leadership. And he continues. Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me. Or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. Brother. Pity party, full swing right now. Victim mindset. No one tells me stuff. You don't care about me. What? Some of you struggle with a victim mindset. And yes, you've been hurt. And probably it was so wrong that it happened. But you can choose to live there or you could choose healing. You can choose to walk in your identity as a victorious overcoming son or daughter who's loved and who's in the process of being healed. Or you can stay in a feedback loop of victim thinking. I am so concerned about this generation of people. I don't mean age-wise. I mean all the people living right now. I think we are slipping more and more into a victim mindset, into a victorious overcomer mindset. If you don't know what I'm talking about or you feel like this resonates with you, I preached a sermon. You can find it on our website talking about being a victorious overcomer instead of a victim. I just really encourage you that if you find yourself resonating with this, please walk with someone else. Begin to be vulnerable and help someone else. Let someone else help you walk through this. So here he is throwing this massive pity party underneath the tree, this tamarisk tree, it's hard to say. Enter bad guy from Nob. 
But Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials in that circle, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Atub, at Nob. He has picked his spot. He's trying to get a promotion. He's a slippery snake. Verse 10, Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions of the sword of Goliath and the Philistine. Oh, it's going to get bad. Verse 11, then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family who were priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Verse 12, Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub. He does, can't even call him by his name. Yes, my lord, he answers. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, the captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? He's your servant. He's the most loyal. He's your son-in-law. He's the captain of the bodyguard, and he's the most respected. There's a lot of reasons why I did this, king. Was that day, verse 15, the first time I inquired of God for him? Pause. That tells us that part of the reason David was there was to inquire of the Lord, not just to get stuff. Of course not. It wasn't the first day that I did that for him. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. Verse 16, but the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech. You and your father's whole family. Saul's mad at David. Saul's mad at his men, and Saul's mad at God. When people get mad at God, or bitterly disappointed with him, they oftentimes lash out and try to take it out on the people around them. I just want you to keep this in mind the next time someone you love lashes out at you. It may be that they're not really upset with you, but they've got an issue with God. Verse 17 Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king's men knew killing the priests basically is striking God and they refused to do it. Then the king Then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to sword Nob, the town of the priests, with his men and his women, his children, its infants, its cattle, its donkeys, and its sheep. Saul is rejected by God because he's not willing to go and thoroughly destroy God's enemies, the Amalekites. In this case, he turns on his own people and the representatives of God. 
and he wipes them out. It's interesting, this is a partial fulfillment of a prophecy spoken through a little boy named Samuel who was hearing God in the night and came to his spiritual father, Eli, the priest, and said, I I keep hearing this sound. And so Eli instructs him to just say, yes, Lord, your servant is listening. This is the message that's given to Samuel, that Eli, because of Eli's sin and his son's grievous, awful sin as priests, their family line will be taken out, be wiped out. The first part of that fulfillment happens when they try to carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle like it's a good luck charm, and both Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, are killed. When Eli hears of the news, he's so upset he falls backwards and he hits his head and dies. That's the beginning of the fulfillment. This is the second part of the fulfillment. All of his house that was living, his family, those priestly line were living in Nob. They're eliminated except one. We see that one in verse 20. And now we're going to the forest where David is hiding, and this one priest escapes to get to David in hiding. But Abiathar is his name. A son of Ahimelech, son of Atub, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Verse 22. Then David said to Abiathar, that day, When Doeg the Edomite was there at Nob, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I'm responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Verse 23. So stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also, and you will be safe with me. This priest, Abiathar, serves David all the way through his life and into Solomon's reign, our third king. When he's removed as the priest and a priest from the house of Zadok begins to rule or reign or serve as priest, and that is the fulfillment completely of this prophecy. And when that comes up, I think, I think maybe it's referred to in First Chronicles. So I have to look and see. But it literally says, and this is the fulfillment. And so God is making sure he understands, if I say it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But that doesn't mean that Saul doesn't, isn't incredibly sinful. It doesn't mean that Doeg probably doesn't have some special place in torment for what he did. The leadership principle here at the end where David lands is this, always take responsibility. If you're going to influence others, don't blame, shift, don't sidestep. Whether it makes you look good or it's rough to wear, as leaders, as those who influence others, we must take responsibility. This means for us parents, sometimes we've got to apologize to our kids and say, you know what, I I blew it. It doesn't take away your power when you apologize. It just shows your heart. means when you're at work, you don't try to blame it on someone else or make excuses. You take responsibility. And if you're a boss, 
or a manager. When things go badly, no matter whether it was your fault or not, if you're the boss, you take responsibility. I saw this quote by a a coach, consultant coach, named Courtney Lynch. She said this, Leaders inspire accountability through their ability to accept responsibility before they place blame. Leaders inspire accountability through their ability to accept responsibility before they place blame. So David lands well and models what it looks like for us to take responsibility, which is really the opposite of running in our case. And David writes a psalm about this as well, the Doeg, the bad guy. He writes a psalm, Psalm 52, uh, probably... You might not study that one as much as 34 this week. Stick to 34 as your homework. But if you want to take a look at 52, see what David has to say. Some pretty strong things about Doeg. I mean, I feel strongly about him too. I think I'm going to sing that song with David when I get to heaven. But there's been a lot of people in history who have struck out at God by persecuting God's people. You think Doeg is bad? You only have to go... 99 years back to the Bolshevik Revolution. In 1922, as a part of trying to eliminate religion, the Soviets killed 2,691 priests, 1,962 monks, and 3,447 nuns. There's nothing new under the sun. But God... But God always has a plan. He always has a remnant. He always has a way through. And even if you feel like you're on the run, you feel like everything is against you, I hope that you can find yourself into a place, into the, a place like the cave where you'll find other people that are discontented and hurt and frustrated, but instead of throwing a pity party like Saul did, you would find a David in your life who would encourage you and strengthen you in the Lord, who would help you walk. It's your isolation that will lead you to more defeat. But your vulnerability and your willingness to receive from others, it's going to win the day in this season. So are you on the run? Are you waiting for God to come through? Are you hiding in a cave and you wish you were in a palace? Who are you going to invite with you? Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to be vulnerable with? This is what I want to leave you with. Because if you're on the run on your own, it's going to be a short trip. But if you begin to run with others, they will help you to grow and to succeed. So somebody here is running from a spouse. I don't have to give details. I just, I just know that that's the case. You're running from your spouse. And the Lord's calling you to turn. Someone else here who is really worried about traveling and you're afraid of flying. And I believe the Lord says, look, I will walk you through this, but you're not going to get to that next place if you don't get past this fear. It means you got to let somebody else in to help you. Someone else here is running from the law. I was just praying and it just felt like, I'm like, that's really general. Well, I'm just going to say it. It's general. But the Lord is calling you. Will you be willing to trust him instead of lie. I just believe so many of us are running from authority because authority has been wielded so unhealthily. 
And God says, I don't want you to be afraid of authority. I want you to be discerning. I want you to be careful. But I want to protect you. I want to bless you. And I want you to learn how to trust again. So would you stand with me? I just want to pray for us that in the midst of this, that we would have soft hearts, that we would see where are the places in our life where we're subtly running away from what we're called to, that we'll hear his voice and be led by his spirit. We'd be people of truth and we would link arms and walk together. So Jesus, thank you that you are really good and you know the road ahead. I pray that as we move forward, as a church family, that you teach us how to link arms. You teach us how to be in the cave together and not have pity parties together and be victims, but learn how to be victorious overcomers together. Lord, would you teach us how to speak the truth in love and walk toward health. So I pray a blessing on this house in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you're watching on the stream, thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad that you're joining us in this way. And if you're in the house, you've got prayer on the way out in the chapel. Make sure you grab your trash. We'll see you next week.